Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Repentance, Cleaning Up the Messy House. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, September 28, 2008. Repent and live, thunders Ezekiel in the Old Testament reading for this week. Ezekiel 18.32 In a culture that's forgotten how to blush, that counsels us to never apologize and never explain, Ezekiel's words sound archaic, even dour. Isn't his advice psychotherapeutically harmful? Why all the self-hatred? But Ezekiel's message is not mere religious rhetoric of the so-called Old Testament as if it deserved a wink and a nod. Repentance is not some linguistic anachronism that we might delete from our moral lexicon. In the Gospel for this week, Jesus preaches an identical message, Repent and Live, Matthew 21, 32. In fact, on the first page of Mark's Gospel, in his very first recorded words, Jesus proclaims, The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Mark 1.15 So, for those who want to live Christianly, repentance is central to life rather than peripheral. It's essential rather than dispensable. Obligatory, not optional. And contrary to modern misconceptions, when done well, repentance is entirely life-giving rather than death-dealing. Repentance is a movement toward health and wholeness, rather than a descent into repression and self-recrimination. Repentance best takes place in a church community, but it's ultimately a personal act rather than an ecclesiastical ritual. The Protestant reformers insisted on this point when they tried to recover the explosive power of the gospel story that they believed had been encrusted with 1,500 years of arbitrary church authority and tendentious traditions. The very first of Martin Luther's 95 Theses, for example, reads, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Although repentance might have its public and communal dimensions, genuine repentance thus constitutes a deeply personal and individually unique act before God and my neighbor. If you're lucky, others might help you, but no one can repent for another. You can only repent for yourself. In this sense, repentance can be quite simple, as observed by the Syrian abbot John Climacus in the 6th century. In his book, The Ladder of Divine Ascent, he writes, Let your prayer be very simple. For the tax collector and the prodigal son, just one word was enough to reconcile them to God. A single word might do, but genuine repentance is also a lifelong style of life which is to say that it's a complex process that acknowledges the ambiguity of our fallen human condition. Since our human condition will never know perfection this side of heaven, 
We'll never know a time when we don't need repentance as our friend. After I had been married a number of years, my wife and I decided to retake some diagnostic tests that we had taken in premarital counseling. I wanted to see if and how we had changed. The answer, at least according to the test, not much. When I asked my psychologist friend about my meager progress and prospects for change, based upon his years of clinical experience, Arden only shrugged. Well, for most people, change is complex, slow, and incremental. And so, with Luther, we can say that repentance requires our entire life throughout our life. In the Gospel this week, Jesus offended his listeners when he observed that decidedly immoral people, like prostitutes and tax collectors, understood repentance better than religiously righteous people. He explained that the religiously righteous, wrongly and to their peril, believe that they are better than they really are. They imagine that they don't need to repent. Repent of what? I'm as good as the next guy. Moral outcasts, on the other hand, have no such illusions or compulsions. They have no need to hew to social conventions that protect us. They know how bad off they really are. I learned this the hard way when a therapist once informed me that my test scores indicated that I scored way high on the test's <coughs> built-in fudge factor. <coughs> the fudge factor smokes out answer patterns that are too good to be true. No, said the therapist, you are not as good as your answers insinuate nor will this test let you fake it. In fact, your fudge factor is way beyond the standard deviation. Jesus further observed that children are also often better at admitting their faults and failures than adults. My wife had a second grader who once drew a picture of a fierce rhinoceros with a disturbing and unvarnished admission as a caption. I'm as angry as a rhino, said the child. Similarly, in her book, Amazing Grace, A Vocabulary of Faith, Kathleen Norris writes about a little boy who wrote a poem, the name of which was called The Monster Who Was Sorry. In the poem, the boy explodes about how he hated it when his father yelled at him. In anger, he threw his sister down the stairs, wrecked his room, then destroyed an entire town. The little boy's poem concludes, Then I sit in my messy house and say to myself, I shouldn't have done all that. Commenting on the boy's poem, Kathleen Norris writes, My messy house says it all. With more honesty than most adults could have mustered, the little boy made a metaphor for himself that admitted the depth of his rage and also gave him a way out. If that boy had been a novice in a fourth-century monastic desert, his elders might have told him that he was well on the way toward repentance. Not such a monster after all, but only human. If the house is messy, they might have said, why not clean it up? Why not make it into a place where God might wish to dwell? 
And so, in repentance, Ezekiel writes, we move beyond mere regret, embarrassment, or shame. In true repentance, I implore God to rid me of all the offenses I have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Ezekiel 18.31 Through the enabling power of divine grace, we seek a change of mind and heart leading to changed actions. Or, in the words of Paul's epistle this week, that means that we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. And now for further reflection. Can you think of other metaphors for repentance that admit one's fault but also suggest a way forward. What common misunderstandings about repentance perpetuated by the church or secular culture can you identify? <clears throat> Meditate upon the words of the psalmist for this week from Psalm 25. Remember, O Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you are good, O Lord. For the sake of your name, O Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. And finally, a favorite prayer of mine from a monk called Arsenios in the 5th century. My God, do not abandon me. I have done nothing good before thee, but grant me in thy compassion the power to make a start. For books this week, I review Martin Marty, The Christian World, A Global History, New York, Random, A Modern Library Chronicles book from Random, 2007, 263 pages. How do you tell a story that spans two millennia and six continents, that today includes 2.2 billion adherents, and limit yourself to 200 pages? First off, you hire Martin Marty. For 35 years, Martin Marty taught at the University of Chicago where he distinguished himself as one of the country's premier American church historians. He's written more than 50 books, and his honors include the National Book Award, the National Humanities Medal, and the Medal of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. As an ordained Lutheran minister, Marty is also an enthusiastic participant in the Christian story he tells. Christianity has by now splintered into 38,000 denominations around the globe, but Martin Marty suggests that its singular provocative theme in all times and places is the human Jesus who is worshipped as the exalted Lord. This minimalist formula, of course, has given rise to numberless variations. Marty writes, Witnessing to, seeking to serve, placing hopes in, globally propagating a vision of this God-man, or man-God, gives Christianity its distinctive character and force, or its marked 
idiosyncrasy. Beginning at the beginning with the tireless Apostle Paul who trekked at least 8,000 miles spreading the news about Jesus the Lord, Marty narrates the Christian story in its Roman Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant permutations. After considering the Jewish beginnings, he proceeds geographically. Chapters 2 and 9 consider Asia. Chapters 3 and 8 look at Africa. Chapters 4 and 5, Europe, and then Latin America and North America in the middle chapters 6 and 7. As a global history of Christianity, Martin draws special attention to the uniquely formative influences, both early and modern, of Asia and Africa. In its oldest and newest forms, Christianity is especially African and Asian. Europe was a relative latecomer to the Christian story and today appears to be in decline, playing a smaller and smaller role in the overall plot. Another strength of this narrative is the considerable time spent telling how Christianity has been the source of suffering and violence. That's part of our story, too. Christians have slaughtered Jews, Muslims, Native Americans, slaves, and, in the Thirty Years' War, about 10 million of their fellow Christians. To deny this would be like trying to make your family history sound better than it is. But the story lives on, and in this telling, its history is in the capable hands of a willing participant and a gifted scholar. Martin Marty, The Christian World, A Global History for film this week, I review a film from Germany called The Counterfeiters, from the year 2007. Before World War II broke out, the Russian-born Jew Solomon Sorowich earned a well-deserved reputation as the most charming scoundrel in Berlin. The Nazis arrested him as the world's best counterfeiter, and sent him to Sachsenhausen, where they forced him to forge identification cards, passports, documents, banknotes, and money. Lots of money, as in millions of pounds that the Nazis flooded into the British economy to destabilize its currency. The film focuses on Sorowich's role, but includes the many other Jews in the concentration camp whose skills as engravers, printers, and graphic artists landed them in a life of relative luxury that included clean beds, food, medicine, opera music, and even a ping-pong table. Avoiding extermination was one thing. Betraying your fellow Jews and, in effect, financing the Nazi war effort was another. And so all sorts of moral complexities plagued these inmates none more so than when one of their own sabotages the counterfeiting work on the American dollar. This film is based upon a memoir by Adolf Berger that describes his own true role in the operation. The Counterfeiters won an Academy Award in 2007 for Best Foreign Language Film. The movie is in German with English subtitles. The Counterfeiters from 2000
and 7. And finally, in keeping with our theme of repentance, for poetry this week, we've posted the Psalm of David, Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak, and justified when you judge. Surely I've been a sinner from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost places. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all of my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. A Psalm of David when the prophet Nathan confronted him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and sent her husband Uriah to be killed in the front lines of battle. Psalm 51. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September 28, 2008. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.